Genesis chapter 21. And the Lord visited Sarah as he had said. And the Lord did speak unto Sarah as he had spoken. For Sarah conceived and bare Abraham a son in his old age at the set time or the exact time of which God had spoken to him. And Abraham called the name of his son that was born unto him, whom Sarah bare to him, Isaac. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac, being eight days old, as God had commanded. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born unto him. And Sarah said, God hath made me to laugh, so that all that hear will laugh with me. She said, Who would have said to Abraham that Sarah should have given children suck? For I have borne him a son in his old age. And the child grew and was weaned. And Abraham made a great feast the same day that Isaac was weaned. And so at last we see the promise that was given to Abraham 25 years previously coming to pass. It's amazing, really, because Abraham is a hundred years old. And Sarah, she's 90. And they had never had children previously together. For you see, Sarah was barren. But God had said that He would do something marvelous and miraculous. And that Sarah would conceive. Initially, Sarah laughed in mockery. How could it be that... I could conceive. I've been barren for years and I'm an old woman and my husband's an old guy. Come on. But now it came to pass. And so they named the child exactly what God said he should be called, Isaac, which means crack up, laughter. The joke's on you. I mean, is this funny? We're tickled by it, you see. We are having a baby. It's been a long haul, but here it is. Interesting, because right away we see a principle of spiritual life, and that is, oftentimes, in fact, could I say more often than not, there is a time gap between the promise and the performance of the promise, and that gap is longer than we thought that it would be, or that we think that it should be. God gives a promise to you, He gives a promise to me, and then time goes on. And we wonder, what's happening? What went wrong? But in reality, it's just the way of spiritual life. God gives a promise, and He will perform it, but not as quickly as we think that He should, or as quickly as we wish that He would. There's almost always a chunk of time, longer than we were ever anticipating, before the promise is performed or comes to pass. We need to remember that. How wise it would be if we really grasp that fact. God gives a promise to us, but He allows time to pass a lot longer than we were thinking before the promise is fulfilled for us. Why? Is it because God is teasing you? Teasing me? Uh-uh. He's not that way. But rather, He's teaching you and He's teaching me how to walk by faith. 
The only way I will learn to walk by faith is if I don't understand exactly what's going on or if I don't see what's up ahead. Only then am I really allowing faith to kick in. The Bible says we walk by faith and not by sight. If I can see it or if I understand it, that does not require faith. The only way my father can get me to be a man of faith is to give a promise to me and then let me wait for a while where I'm in the dark. I don't understand. I can't figure out what's going on, what's coming down, or what went wrong. But the whole reason is if I could understand it or if I could really see it, it doesn't require faith. Faith means I don't understand, Lord, what's happening but I trust in you that you're on the throne and you know what you're doing. God is committed to making me and God is committed to making you a person of faith. Faith will matter in eternity. Our implicit trust in the Lord, having confidence that the Lord will come through, is going to be a key ingredient to allow me and allow you to function in the coming kingdom. It's essential that we are people of faith. So, Abraham, who's called the father of faith, he is himself being put into a place where his faith is being stretched. And now at last, 25 years later, here comes the promised son. In a time when it would seem to be impossible biologically, yet God comes through. And he says, ah, Isaac, laughter. This is a crack up. This tickles me. This is humorous. That me and Sarah, she's 90, I'm 100. We're now having a baby. Amazing. Then we read that the child was weaned. And as the child was weaned in verse 8, that day the child was weaned, Abraham made a great feast. Man, Papa Abraham celebrated, was elated, had a great big party when he saw Isaac. Isaac, his son, was no longer dependent on his mother's milk, but now was able to take in meat. Moving from milk to meat. Now, we know what that means spiritually. There's a great ecstasy that happens in the heart of, of not only the heavenly father, but of an earthly parent like me. When I see my kids move from milk to meet when they are weaned, when they can sink their teeth into the Scriptures and extract truth, when they're able to be fed, not by their dad or their mom from a bottle spiritually, but they begin to see things in the Word that applies to them specifically. It's extracted. Hey, that causes any parent to have a great feast. You want to throw a party when you see that your kids are getting it. They're being weaned. They're getting into the meat of the word, you see. Exciting day. I had such a reason to party right before my daughter Jessie went to heaven. A few weeks before she was taken to heaven, we were on the mountaintop, and I was teaching in one weekend the whole book of Revelation, which is sort of miraculous now that I look back on that. But as I taught the book of Revelation over that weekend, I came to a certain point on Saturday late afternoon where I sent the retreatants away to contemplate certain sections, and, and then I had them come back to share. And Jessie came back, and she raised her hand during the sharing time, 
and said, Dad, I don't know if you've ever seen this before. It's new to me. She said, the assigned section that I had was concerning the seven bowl judgments when God is pouring out His wrath in the tribulation. Remember the seven bowl judgments? Well, if you don't, there's seven bowls of wrath that are being poured out in the tribulation period. And Jesse said, you know, as I was reading this through in our uh, quiet time, it struck me that those seven bowls, chronologically in order, match up with the seven last sayings of Christ on the cross. When he was pinned to the tree and God was pouring out wrath upon him, the wrath that should have been poured out upon us, upon Christ, and he had seven specific sayings. And she went from saying one to bowl one and made the correlation, saying two to bowl two, and again made the correlation, saying three to bowl three. And I tell you, I had never heard anything like that before, and I was bowled over, quite literally. I really was. I just sat there as I heard her go from the sayings of Christ on the cross, absorbing wrath, to the bowl when God is pouring out His wrath. And it was so amazing, and when she was done... The folks just clapped. They spontaneously applauded Jess. And I just said, this retreat is over. And that was it. I mean, there was nothing more to say that day. And then shortly thereafter, she went to heaven. But it's interesting, you know, when you watch your kids, when they really are are getting it, they're, they're, they're making the correlations, the connections, they're gaining the meat, and they're practicing the walk. They're, they're making it. I was blessed by Christy when I went out the door last night to come to the study and teach. You know, as I was on my way out, Christy said, Hey, Dad, stop. And she said, Can I lay hands on you and pray for you? And, and here I am hurrying out the door to the study, and my daughter slows me down and lays her hands on me and prays blessing for me. I tell you, those kinds of things, when you watch your kids grab it and get it, it causes you to celebrate. When they go from milk to meat because hebrews tells us strong meat belongs to those who by reason of use have discerned their senses or exercised their senses to discern good and evil the strong meat is given to those who are using what they've already been given they're using the milk or they're using the pablum or they're using the strained food And as they use it, the Bible says, strong meat will be given to them. How do you become a deeper person in the Word? By doing the things that you already know. That's the secret. If I'm practicing what I already know, God says strong meat, the real heavy stuff, belongs to those who by reason of use, not by reason of jotting it in their margins or making a note of it in their Bible. No. Those who use what is given will be given strong meat, you see, as they continue on their journey. Well, here is Father Abraham. He sees his son Isaac going from milk to meat. Literally, he's being weaned and he celebrates, just like we do as parents when we see our kids move into maturity. So he throws this great party that day. Well, the story continues on in verse 9. And Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, which she had borne to Abraham, mocking or taunting. Wherefore she said unto Abraham, Cast out this bondwoman and her son, for the son of this bondwoman, Ishmael, shall not be heir with my son, with Isaac. 
And the thing was very grievous in Abraham's sight because of his son Ishmael. And God said to Abraham, Let it not be grievous in thy sight because of the lad and because of the bondwoman. Don't be grieved, Abraham, because of Ishmael and Hagar. In all that Sarah hath said unto thee, hearken unto her voice. For in Isaac shall thy seed be called. At this point, Isaac is weaned. He's approximately age three. That would make Ishmael, Abraham's eldest son, about 17. You mean Abraham had an elder son? Yes, but not with Sarah. Remember what happened? Sarah was saying, Abe, I'm old and you're older still, and if we're going to have a family like God is saying, we better help him out. We better do something practical. So you take Hagar, my servant girl, and have relations with her, and that'll count as our son, the child that you conceive. You know the story. And they conceived a son whose name was Ishmael. But that could not be the promised son because it was done in the energy of Abraham's flesh. It was not a miracle birth. It was not of God. It was done in an attempt by Abraham and Sarah to try and help God out in their own energy. And that always proves to be a problem ultimately. So Ishmael, Ishmael is sired, Ishmael is born, Abraham's son, but not Sarah's. Ishmael today is the father of the Arab people, of course. But Isaac would be the the father of the chosen people, Israel, through whom Messiah would come. Now, here's the scene. You see Ishmael at 17, teasing, taunting, mocking Isaac. And you may say, well, how could a 17-year-old son tease a three-year-old brother. And if you ask that question, you haven't had kids yet. Because if you've had a family, you know it doesn't matter what age they are, there can be this teasing, this taunting, you see. And Sarah says, Ishmael's got to go. And, and her mother too, Hagar. And it was grievous in Abraham's ear because he loved Ishmael. He was attached to Ishmael. Ishmael was his oldest member how earlier when God was still reiterating His promise that a child would come miraculously, what did Abraham say? Oh, that Ishmael might be the one. He's already here. Let Ishmael be the one. God said, no, it cannot be. Abraham loved Ishmael, and now he's bummed because Sarah is saying, Abe, you got to do something now. Hagar and Ishmael, they've got to go. Abraham was grieved and essentially saying no until God said, and this is a verse that we should take careful note of, God said in verse 12, God said, In all that Sarah hath said unto thee, hearken unto her voice. That verse should be underlined in every husband's Bible, even as it is underlined in every wife's Bible. God says, listen to your wife. Listen to her. Abraham had his own plan that seemed reasonable and right. That is, Ishmael's my son. I can't kick him out. Good night, Sarah. But God says, you listen to your wife. Interesting. 
You know, it's amazing how often we as husbands quote Ephesians 5.22. We know that well. Many of us do. That is where it says, Wives, be submitted unto your own husbands as, as unto the Lord. Even as you're submitted to the Lord, be submitted to your husband. And most of us husbands know that verse well. And we say, yeah, preach on that, brother. <laughs> it's one that we have a grasp on, men, don't we? Wives, be submitted to your own husbands. Ephesians 5.22 But, dear brothers, understand this, that 5.22 follows Ephesians 5.21. And what does Ephesians 5.21 say? It says this, Submit yourselves one to another in the fear of God. You submit one to another. Husbands submitting to wives. Wives submitting to husbands. You are listening to each other. You are receiving from each other now. If there needs to be a decision made, and the husband and wife sharing together, praying with each other, talking it over, truly do not agree, and a decision must be made, the Bible says, then in that case, the responsibility lies with the husband, and the wife should follow in that direction. But it means in the context that, listen, there's to be a spirit of submission and humility, husbands with wives and wives with husbands. You see, Ephesians 5.21 comes before Ephesians 5.22. Submit to each other. Now, if there's a real difference and a decision must be made, wives, you follow the lead of your husband. But here God says to Abraham, listen to your wife. How important it is that I listen to my wife, Tammy. She often has an insight or a perspective that I have totally missed or just don't see. And how important it is that I as a husband really pick her brain and run things by her and talk things over with her and pray about things together before a final decision is made, you see. Listen to your wives. The older you get, I think this is more necessary the older you get. Uh, this story was in the paper, and I just was amazed by it. You might have seen it as well in the San Francisco Chronicle a few days back. It's from Detroit, Michigan, Reuters News Service. News service. Adding new fodder to the battle between the sexes, researchers said Wednesday that they have discovered evidence that the male human brain shrinks faster with age than the female brain. The study by researchers at Henry Ford Hospital using magnetic resource images showed that the, the shrinkage is most pronounced in the frontal and temporal lobes which control three areas, thinking, planning, and memory. <laughs> a man's brain shrinks more rapidly than a woman's brain what part of the brain? Just that which controls thinking, planning, and memory, that's all. Dr. C. Edward Coffey, who was overseeing this massive experiment and study, says, and I quote, 
My wife says it's no surprise to her, close quote. (laughs) Guys, we need to realize that, you know, our wives have input and insight that is from the Lord. And, uh, fellas, don't be too concerned about this. You know, you'll forget it before you leave here tonight, so (laughs) don't worry about it. But be that as it may, God says to Abraham that day, listen to your wife, Abraham. Listen to her. God said directly, hearken unto her, for in Isaac, that's where the seed, the promise is going to be coming from, you see. Now, he goes on to say this in verse 13. God declares to Abraham, now concerning your son, the son of the bondwoman, Hagar, I will make a nation because, because he is thy seed. I know he's important to you. And because he is your child, I'm going to make a great nation of him. And indeed, Ishmael becomes a great nation, essentially the Arab people today. But you see, although he was made a great nation, it was not the plan of God. And yet God said, I'm going to bless him for your sake, Abraham, because you conceived this baby. You brought this about. I can't help but think about what I was reading concerning D.L. Moody in the past couple of days. D.L. Moody, as most of you know, was a powerful evangelist. He was a wonderful man of God. He was the Billy Graham of his generation back in the 1800s, the late 1800s. And he was a shoe salesman before he got the call of God to forget those souls and start saving souls. And he was called by the Lord. He wasn't a highly educated man, nor was he eloquent in speech particularly, but he had an anointing on him. And man, he converted, or the Lord through him converted Hundreds of thousands of people. He was a very powerful, powerful uh, evangelist in American history. Perhaps second only to Billy Graham. But anyway, D.L. Moody did many things. He was a very energetic man. And, of course, we think of the Moody uh, Memorial Church in Chicago, which for decades, even to this day, has been a powerhouse of teaching and a real lighthouse for the gospel. And we think of, perhaps even more impactingly, Moody Bible Institute, which has trained tens of thousands of pastors and Christian workers very effectively. You think of Moody Church, you think of Moody Bible Institute, all kinds of things that were done by the Lord through D.L. Moody in a very powerful way. But there's something else that D.L. Moody started that all of you will recognize. D.L. Moody started something which at the end of his life, he said, God has blessed this, but it is the blessing of Ishmael. It was started by me, but it was not really of the Lord, I can now see, in the way that it should have been. D.L. Moody's intention was very sincere. His motives were right. He really wanted to see, as he was advised by his counselors, to begin a ministry that would help Men, young men, develop their bodies physically, as well as to build them spiritually. But in putting this into play, he was talked into certain compromises. And that is, unlike his other ministries, this one would be overseen by members, prominent members of the community. It would not be overseen or directed by just men who loved Jesus and knew the Word, 
but rather it was going to be more inclusive to reach out to the whole community. The organization, still going on to this day and expanding, even as we speak, the YMCA, started by D.L. Moody, the Young Men's Christian Association. But sad to say, it quickly did not remain, or it soon lost its Christian emphasis. And it was because of the compromises that were made at the beginning. By the time D.L. Moody was dying, he realized, oh my, I had such a heart, but this was done in the energy of my flesh. And yet, it's blessed. Uh, I'm a member of the YMCA. I appreciate it, but it's not the organization that it was intended to be or could have been had D.L. Moody, by his own admission, not done it in the energy of the flesh, taking advice from business leaders and civic leaders. He should have stuck to his guns. He should have stood on the promise of the Lord that was put in his heart. But instead, he tried to be, oh, negotiable and ended up creating what he calls, that's an Ishmael. It's blessed. Many people are helped by it, I guess, but it's far from what it was supposed to be. Well, in this same way, we see Abraham, Ishmael, blessed, but yet... Yet, it can't be the promised son, you see, because it was done in a compromising way. Ishmael was conceived with Hagar, the bondwoman, in Abraham's own fleshly energy. Hmm, interesting. So God says, I'm going to bless Ishmael, but he can't be the promised seed. He'll become a great nation. But he also proved to be a perpetual problem to the people of Israel, the descendants of Isaac. So God spoke to Abraham, listen to your wife, and I'm going to do something with Ishmael still, and God has a plan for Ishmael as we get in a few months into the prophecy books of Isaiah and Jeremiah at our present pace, probably four months away. We'll see that God does have a plan for those people too, you see, very definitely. Well, Abraham, verse 14, rose up early in the morning. He took bread and a bottle of water, a skin of water, And he gave it to Hagar, putting it on her shoulder. And he sent her away in the child. And she departed and wandered in the desert of Beersheba. Again, we pointed out Sunday, this wilderness is really a desert. It's a dry, arid, rocky, seemingly God-forsaken region. And here they go. Hagar, the Egyptian woman, and Ishmael, Abraham's son with a bottle or a skin of water over her shoulder and a bit of bread in their hand. And out they go into the desert. Well, the water was spent in the bottle. It was soon gone. And she cast the child under one of the shrubs. That is, Ishmael would be no doubt affected by the heat, going through dehydration and heat prostration. And so Hagar takes Ishmael and puts him under a shrub to try and get him out of the sun a bit anyway. And then she went, verse 16, and sat her down over against him, opposite of him, a good way off, the distance that you could shoot an arrow with a bow. And she said, oh, let me not see the death of the child. And she sat opposite against him and she lifted up her voice and she wept. Interesting story. We talked about it Sunday. Abraham, at first, as I mentioned Sunday, this story troubles me greatly. How could a dad who loves his son, as Abraham loved Ishmael, 
send him away with just a little bit of water and a bit of bread into a desert, tough, difficult area. Abraham, as we pointed out at this time, was a very wealthy man. He was loaded. And it seems to me, because he was loaded with camels and donkeys and men slaves and women slaves and all kinds of gold and silver that he got from Pharaoh and from Abimelech later on. The guy was wealthy. Why he wouldn't send Ishmael and Hagar away? Okay, they got to go. Why he wouldn't send them away with a huge caravan of supplies and stuff and provision? But as we pointed out, there's a couple things, and I want to add a very important third point. First of all, he sends Ishmael out. Number one, as we talked about Sunday, he sends Ishmael out, and it is, number one, an indication of his faith. An indication of his faith. What do you mean? God said that he was going to do something with Ishmael and through Ishmael, and Abraham took God at face value and said, it doesn't matter whether I send camels with him or provisions for him. God has a plan and God will come through. And it's a tremendous indication that Abraham, who loved Ishmael, had confidence that God would do what he said he would do. A good word for all of us that are parents, because God gives us promises too, that if we train up our children in the way that they should go, even when they are old, they will not depart from the Lord. God promises us that he is able, that is, he will keep that which is committed unto him. And we need as parents like Father Abraham here to say, Lord, you've given us your word that you're going to take care of, of our kids, that Peter, John, and, and Christy, and Jesse, who is now in heaven, and Benjamin and Mary, they're committed to you. They've received training about you, and you've promised that you are now going to take care of them and that they will be kept by you. So be it, Lord. I don't need to panic and try and get a caravan together to insulate my children. Be careful, parents, that you don't fall into the very real parental tendency of saying, you know, I, I can't have my kids go to, to, to Sunday school because they might get a cold, or I can't have my kids do this, or I can't have my kids do that. If you try and protect your kids, it can be an indication of your lack of faith in what God has to say concerning what He'll do for your kids and with your kids if you trust in the promises of the Word. I often think, oh my mommy or daddy, uh, precious parent, I really feel you're erring. Because in trying to protect your kid with your caravan of protection, you are actually showing a lack of faith in what God said he would do if you do what you're supposed to in seeing your child is nurtured in the knowledge and admonition of the Lord. Don't be uh, trying to protect your kids when God says, hey, I want to direct your kids. Be careful. Well, Abraham here, be that as it may, shows this tendency of saying, I trust God. So it's an indication of his faith, number two, it is not only an indication of his faith, but as we saw, it's an illustration about our flesh. An illustration about our flesh. Remember, Galatians chapter 4, jot it down if you weren't here, look it up later, Galatians 4, 22 through 31. Paul the Apostle says this story that we're now talking about is an allegory. It's, it's a picture. Ishmael is a type of the flesh, Paul says. Isaac is. It's a type of the Spirit. And he says, 
In light of that, understand the allegorical meaning. Ishmael is a type of the flesh. Isaac is a type of the spirit. In that way, I understand. Send him away. Ishmael's got to go and make, Romans 13, verse 14 says, make no provision for the flesh. You don't send a bunch of stuff out to feed the flesh. And the things I do and the things I watch and hear and take in, if I am feeding Ishmael my flesh that's within me, it's going to come back and haunt me. We talked about the white dog and the black dog. Remember that? Be not deceived. God is not mocked. Here's a story about mockery. Ishmael, the flesh, mocking Isaac. Don't be deceived. God is not mocked. If you sow to the flesh what you watch, what you think, what you hear, what you do, then of the flesh you will reap what? Corruption. If you sow to the Spirit, Isaac, then of the Spirit you will reap what? Life everlasting. Very important principle. We talked about those on Sunday, but here's the third one. Not only is this story, and this is so important, I didn't have time to delve into it on Sunday, but it's a key. Not only is this story an indication of Abraham's faith, he trusted God with Ishmael, and then an illustration, an allegory of how we're to treat the flesh, starve him. Don't send a caravan with him. Don't feed the flesh because the flesh will come back and bite you badly without exception. But number three, it provides illumination. Number three, illumination about my failure. Indication of his faith, illustration about our flesh, illumination about my failure. How so? Listen very carefully. In the Galatians 4 passage, verse 22 through 31, where Paul says, this allegory, it's a story, more than just a historical event, it's a picture, he says this. Not only is Ishmael a type of the flesh and Isaac a type of the spirit, but the mother of Ishmael, Hagar, is the law. And she has got to go. Sarah is an illustration in the allegory of grace and the new covenant. Hagar represents Mount Sinai, Paul says, where the law was given. Sarah represents the heavenly Mount Zion where grace is found and from whence grace flows to you and me. Now, here's what this means, and it's huge. If I'm going to deal with the flesh... Ishmael, the part of me that I know ought not to be fed. Here is my natural tendency, and it's wrong. My natural tendency is to say, okay, if I've got to deal with the flesh, the key is going to be to lay down the law, rules and regulations. I'm going to lay down the law. This is the great mystery of spiritual life. When I do that... I am bound to fail badly. Just like Ishmael's got to be sent away, the flesh, my fleshly indulgences, so too at the same time is the mother of the fleshly indulgences, Hagar, which is the law, rules and regulations. Well, wait a minute. I don't understand, we say, if we're trying to deal with the flesh. What we need are regulations, determinations, rules. Wait a minute. 
The problem is, is that the rules and regulations might be fine and wonderful, but I cannot do it. I will try to keep my rules. And when I do, for as long as I can, I will be a self-righteous prude. When I keep my rules, I will say, through my discipline and by my keeping of regulations, I have conquered Ishmael. And I will look at you and I'll say, what's wrong with you? How come your Ishmael is running wildly? Why can't you be like me? I, you see, have accomplished this task through the law, regulations and rules. And I can do that for a season, but here's the problem. I cannot keep it indefinitely. I will fail in my own rules, in my own obligations. I will fail. And then I go, oh no, I'm no longer a self-righteous prude. I'm now a self-condemned dude. I walk around and I go, oh man, I, I was doing so good for three days or three months or three years or whatever it was, and, and then I blew it and I'm blowing it. And, and I walk around and I say, why even go to Bible study? Why even pray? I, I'm just so condemned because I didn't keep my rules and my regulations. I will either be under Hagar a self-righteous prude or a self-condemning dude. One of the two. This is why the law doesn't work. It makes you a Pharisee or you feel very, very awful, and you feel lousy. You go up and down and up and down. So the answer is, and Romans 7 also explains this very powerfully, the answer is not to put yourself under the law, but to reckon yourself dead to the law. That is, send the law away too, because the law will produce in you Fleshly activity. What do you mean, John? I'll tell you what I mean. Regulations that are imposed in a legalistic manner will always produce rebellion. Regulations will always produce rebellion. I'll do them for a while, but then I'll start to say, hey, what kind of rules, regulation? I'm, and I go in the opposite direction. The proverbial PK illustrates that fact. You know what PKs are? Preacher's kids. And that is a proverbial, you know, problem. Preacher's kids, they're always seemingly in terrible rebellion. Now, that's what's known in church history. If you've been around church stuff very long, you know that that's the expectancy almost of preacher's kids, that they rebel against God, that they go off and do their own thing. They sneak behind the barn and smoke cigarettes and do all that stuff. Why is that? Because the well-meaning pastor says, you're not going to embarrass my church or my denomination or me. So you're not going to do this, 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 this. Why, Daddy? Because you're my son or you're my daughter and I'm a preacher, so you're going to toe the line, buddy. And what happens is the kids under obligations and rules and the law will go into rebellion. If we put obligations, rules, and laws upon people, they will ultimately lurch off into rebellion. So what's the answer? It's shocking. The answer is to send the law away. Don't put people under regulations or rules, but rather you teach them about the new covenant, which is grace. Grace? Grace. 
the fact that the Lord is going to be working in them, going to be writing His will upon the tables of their heart and giving direction to them and causing them to see what they should do. And it's not a got to then, it's a get to. Let me explain. I have opinions about certain things. I know for me, certain things are not right. For me. Because the Holy Spirit has written on my heart over the years saying, Johnny, this is not appropriate for you. And I knew certain things God was putting on my heart that were somewhat difficult initially perhaps, but I knew that it was the Lord. Example, when it came time in junior high school when everybody else was going to dances, I knew in my heart that dances were not something which I should participate in through junior high school and high school and so forth. And it's because of the atmosphere that was created at many of the dances, the kinds of lyrics that were sung, the kind of lighting that went on, the kind of activities that took place. I knew that as a Christian young person, for me, for me, dances were not right. And so I didn't go to dances. Is it a legalistic, denominational church rule? No. It's something which for me, I knew, and I have come to agree even more now that I'm a dad, that dances are not where I believe I should be, and so I talked to Peter, and I talked to Jesse, I talked to Christy, and I say, here's my opinion on that. I believe that Oftentimes, in those places, at those parties where dancing goes on and so forth, I know what 17-year-old, 16-year-old, 18-year-old, 15-year-old guys think. I know how they think, because I was one. I know what goes on in their minds, Jesse. I know what they think about Christy. I know what takes place. And so, you know, the thing that you need to do now is pray about what the Lord wants you to do. Is that a place where you can be a vibrant witness for the Lord, make an impact in the name of the Lord? Or is it a place where the atmosphere is is a grief to you and perhaps dangerous for you? And then I have my kids pray about it because I am now giving them instruction and reasons why, but I don't make a dictatorial decree and say, you mustn't go to dances. I say, here's why I don't go to dances. Here's what I have found. I've watched young people for a bunch of years now. And I've watched those that get involved in that scene. And what happens, or what can happen, and I don't think it's a healthy environment. Now, Jesse, Christy, Peter, you guys pray and see what the Lord shows you. And if the Lord gives you a green light, then God bless you. If you can be a witness there, then you have my blessing and my backing. But if you know that it's an atmosphere that is not the best for you, then I would say, don't do it. Now my kids pray. And all three of my older kids made the same decision that I did, not going to those places. We're not making a big statement about it. We're just saying, as we have sought the Lord, the Lord has told me and then told Christy and told Peter and told Jesse, my two little ones have yet to make their decision. It's not a rule. I'm not saying we don't dance because it's against our religion. You know, or we don't dance because, because I'm a pastor and you're PKs. It's none of that stuff. It is, it's teaching our kids how to think and then having them pray and be led by the Spirit. That's the new covenant. The new covenant is grace and letting the Spirit lead them. Now, 
You know what I think about? A lot of movies today. But don't be freaked. I don't, oh boy, I hope he doesn't see me going to Tinseltown, you know. I don't judge somebody else who goes to dances or goes to Tinseltown stuff and all that thing. Hey, if God is giving you a green light, if God gives you a peace and a leading in your heart to take your kids to see movies where there's nudity and God's name being taken in vain and blood flowing and cursing and blasphemy and all kinds of perversion, if you've prayed about it, I don't have a problem with it, you see. All I want for the Applegate family and all I want for my own kids personally is learn how to walk in the Spirit. No rules, no regulations. You do what the Lord is telling you to. And if God is giving you a green light to go there, to watch that, to listen to the other, fine. But just make sure it's the Holy Spirit who's saying to you, I want you to go watch that that nudity today. I want you to be there, you see. And if you can look me in the eye, honey, and say, yes, God is leading me. This is going to be a good thing for us to do. Then fine, you see. The point is, is really, and I want to share my heart here. If somebody else goes to movies in those kinds of ways or goes to dances or goes to, to you know, rock and rodeo or whatever, I don't condemn them. I really don't think all that much about it. All I want is... For the Applegate family, every one of us, to know what it means to talk to the Father and to be led by the Spirit. That's all I care about. Because that's where real victory will be. Not rules that lead to rebellion. Not legalism that leads to a fleshly reaction. You send out Hagar and Ishmael. Hagar is the mother. The law is the mother of the flesh. Interesting concept. What we do want is for people to know how to open their heart before the Lord and then be obedient to the Lord. That's the new covenant. Comprende? Are you with me? That is a key. So illumination about my failure. When do I fail? I fail when I have Hagar, you know, there in me, laying down rules and regulations that are not spirit-led, but just rules and regulations for the sake of my own trying to control the flesh. Hey, that's not the way to go. That leads to legalism and Phariseeism. Well, we've got to continue on here. So, Hagar, the law, and Ishmael, they're tied together. They're the same family, legalism and fleshly activity. They're related very intimately. Send them both away and walk in the Spirit, Isaac and Sarah, the new covenant. God working in your heart, writing on your heart what he wants you to do. Be obedient to that, you see. That's where there's real victory. Well, she's weeping in verse 16 because the child, Ishmael, seems to be dying. And God, verse 17, heard the voice of the lad. And the angel of God, or the angel of the Lord. Now, who is the angel of the Lord? Who, gang? It's Jesus. It's what we call a Christophany. The Lord calls out to Hagar out of heaven and says, What aileth thee, Hagar? Fear not, for God hath heard the voice of the lad where he is. What what ails you? Don't you know what are you ailed about? Don't fear. Now when I read this, my mind races back to the story of Jesus in the New Testament, Jesus of Nazareth, when he is also saying a phrase very similar. He's talking to his boys. 
He said to his boys, hey, let's go across the Sea of Galilee to the other side. They get in the boat. He is so at peace. He's asleep in the hole of the boat. The storm begins to rage. And the boat begins to bob up and down like a cork. And these experienced fishermen, these sailors, are freaked out. And finally they shake the Lord. They wake Him up. Master, don't you care that we're perishing? And Jesus says, What aileth thee? Or, O ye of little faith? He says, Fear not. He says, Peace. And the storm is suddenly calmed. Now, it's the same idea. Because see, Jesus said to the boys when they got into the boat, He said, let us go over to the other side. He didn't say, let us go under, out in the middle. Let us go down in an attempt to get to the other side. Jesus gave the word to His disciples that day, let us, we are going over. So when they're saying, we're perishing, we're going under, Jesus says, oh, you guys of little faith, I gave you the word. I said, let us go over. And if I say we're going over, we're going over. We're not going under, you see. And here the same idea. The Lord, Jesus, before he's Jesus of Nazareth, Old Testament appearance of of Jesus Christ, says, what aileth thee? What's, What's wrong with you? Because a promise was given to Hagar by the same Lord in chapter 16, verse 10. Hagar heard from Jesus before, saying, Ishmael is going to be a nation. Twelve princes will come from him. So why are you crying? Why are you, why are you ailing? Why, why aren't you just believing what I said? The Lord here is lovingly rebuking Hagar, saying, Why are you crying? Didn't I give you my word? Have you already forgotten? What word has God given to me? He's told me all things work together for good. Everything that happens. Broken faucets, chicken pox, hoarse voices, whatever it might be. Everything is working together for good. So Johnny, what aileth thee? Have you forgotten already the promises that I have given you in the Scripture? Why are you ailed? Why are you fearing? Why are you weeping? And that's what the Lord says here tenderly but firmly to Hagar. What aileth thee? Fear not. God sees where the kid is. God hears the voice of the lad. He knows where he's at. Arise, Hagar. Lift up the lad and hold him in thine hand. I will make him a great nation. Reiterating the promise yet once again. Well, God opened her eyes, verse 19, and she saw a well of water. She went and filled the bottle with water and gave the lad drink. God was with the lad. He grew and dwelt in the wilderness and became an archer. And he was really good. He was golden, and he was a golden archer. McDonald's began in the wilderness there through Ishmael. It's the flesh, folks. It's the flesh. And he dwelt, (laughs) verse 21, in the wilderness of Paran. (coughs) And mother took him. (laughs) I can't laugh. His mother took him a wife out of the land of Egypt. And now, this next section, please don't tune out. I I commend you for listening and studying so well. I'll go through this quickly, but it's a wonderful section because it deals with an ordinary event in everyday life. This is where it really gets practical. 
How do we deal with ordinary events, problems that come up on the job, in the home? How do we deal with ordinary events? Check this out and think it through with me. It came to pass, verse 22, at that time that Abimelech, remember him? The guy that Abraham lied to and said, she's my sister concerning his wife Sarah. Remember the story? And Abimelech took Sarah into his harem. He was the king of the Philistines. And God says, hey, don't touch her. I'm not going to let you touch her uh, because she is another man's wife. And that's why you are sexually impotent, uh, that you are unresponsive, because I know that you did this not knowing that she was another man's wife. So it's the same Abimelech, you see. Abimelech comes and Phicol, and they spoke to Abraham, saying, and this is years later now, God is with thee, Abraham, in all that thou doest. Now therefore swear unto me here by God that thou wilt not deal falsely with me. Don't lie to me, Abraham. Don't deal falsely with me, buddy. Okay? Nor with my son, nor my son's son, my grandkids, but according to the kindness that I have done to thee. Hey, Abraham, I let you live in this region. You could sojourn here, and uh, I gave you a lot of goods previously. He says, now, now deal with me kindly. He says, and thou shalt do to me and to the land wherein thou hast sojourned. Abraham said, I, I will swear. I, I agree, verse 24. Then Abraham reproved Abimelech, verse 25, because of a well of water which Abimelech's servants had violently taken away. Abimelech said, I didn't know that this was done. I, I didn't know who did this. I didn't even hear about it, verse 26, until I heard it from you today. Well, Abraham, verse 27, took sheep and oxen and gave them unto Abimelech, and both of them cut covenant. They take the sheep and the oxen, split them in half for this contractual agreement. And Abraham set, verse 28, seven hew lambs of the flock by themselves. Abimelech said, What mean these seven hew lambs which thou hast set by themselves? Abraham said, For these seven hew lambs shalt thou take of my hand that they may be a witness to thee that I have digged this well. Wherefore, he called the place Beersheba, which means the well of oath, because there they both made a covenant. They swear to each other. They made a covenant at Beersheba. So Abimelech, verse 32, rose up and Phicol, the chief captain of his army, and returned to the land of the Philistines. Some things to note here. It's a very ordinary event. It's a contractual dispute. It's a legal problem. An ordinary event in the everyday life of this man, this giant of the faith, Abraham. It came to pass, verse 22. I love that phrase. It's one of my favorite phrases in the Bible. It came to pass. I'm glad that things pass, aren't you? It came to pass. It came to pass. It came to pass. What came to pass? Well, interesting, because when you read this story of Abimelech and Abraham's encounter with each other, we see some things happening. Number one, we see Abraham in this matter, number one, showing humility. Number one, humility. Mark this. Listen carefully. Humility. How so? Abimelech, when we hear from him last, is rebuking Abraham for being a liar. Uh, what are you doing to me in my country lying about Sarah? What's the big idea? How could you do this? And so forth and so on. Abraham does not defend himself. He is a giant of a man spiritually. He failed very definitely. But now years pass by, and listen carefully, 
years pass by, Abimelech is watching Abraham and says, this guy is blessed. He is a blessed man. I see that whatever he does is blessed. I see he's blessed. God is with you, he says. It's obvious. Verse 22, last phrase, God is with you in all that you do. And this shows me something. Abraham shows a tremendous amount of humility in that he never defends himself or sells himself or advertises himself. He just waits until Abimelech over the years can see, hey, this guy is God's man. In other words, listen, he outlives his critics. Abraham just goes on his way day after month after year. And finally, Abimelech has to say, I thought you were a dirty, rotten scoundrel, but now I have changed my mind. I can see that God is with you. Now listen, in this story, this is where it all starts in dealing with everyday situations, uh, everyday events that come our way. Show humility. Don't defend yourself, explain yourself, promote yourself, or advertise yourself. Abraham didn't. He didn't have to prove that he was somebody special or reiterate his personal history. He just went about doing what he was doing and let it be discovered years later through observation. I wrote this in my journal. I, I seldom, in fact, I don't think I have ever shared writings from my journaling, but I was sharing this with Tammy the other morning, and I, I just think it's appropriate to share with you this evening. But it was written, uh, this particular entry, uh, a couple years ago when I was with uh, Chuck Smith teaching on a cruise going through uh, the inland channel of Alaska on a cruise ship. And I was in awe of what we were seeing. And uh, that morning I entered this in that journal. So many blessings, so many thoughts, cruising the waters of the inland passage of Alaska and seeing the mountains tower above us, the stars shining over us, the unseen but teeming life beneath us, I am deeply impacted, not only by His majesty or His creativity or His power and glory, but especially and surprisingly by His humility. For this majestic, creative, beyond genius being, God, tells us that He stretches the heavens out like a curtain, Isaiah. He sits upon the circle of the earth, Job. He measures the heavens with the span of his hand. Yet, he did not give us the take-your-breath-away data, facts, and figures of the size of other stars, the range of our galaxy, the puniness of our planet in comparison to the billions and trillions of other objects. He simply allows the vastness of space, the mysteries beneath the sea, the power of the atom that he holds together, Colossians 1, to slowly be discovered. As man's technology and ability increases, he only discovers more wonder. And I wonder at his humility. I would have laid it all out, let it be known what I have done, how great I am with facts and figures and data. But God allowed himself to be discovered, uncovered in due season. And that season will fill all eternity. Now, real power, true genius, creative ingenuity, spiritual authority, if indeed real, can wait, indeed should wait to be discovered slowly, quietly, 
humility. For only what is real can dare to be humble. And only what is humble will ultimately be exalted. If it's real, only what is real can dare to be humble. And God who makes gillions of stars and has creatures under the sea that we're only now beginning to discover with our modern technology, he didn't make it known. He just says, I'm just going to let man over thousands of years, little by little, discover this. And the more advanced man gets with his computer technology, only then is he going to discover that every time he advances, that I am all that much bigger than he thought previously. That's humility. I would have written this book laying it all out. Here's how big the universe is. Here's how small you are. Here's what I do in holding the atom together. Here are the creatures that you'll never see. They're three miles down below the level of the sea, you see. I would have, but God says no. Because you see, what is truly real can dare to be humble. If it's not real, I've got to advertise. I've got to prove who I am. I've got to convince you if it's not real, that's when advertising comes in. Are you with me? That's when self-promotion takes place. That's when i got to say, listen, I've got to convince you that I am what I know I'm really not. I've got to convince others how great I am because I know I'm really not very great at all. True, true greatness can be humble. Only true greatness can be humble. God is the epitome of humility. Just waiting for centuries to be discovered a little bit at a time. That's greatness. And that's what Abraham is showing us. Only what is real can dare to be humble. Abraham's a real guy. And he just waits. He doesn't prove himself. He doesn't try to prove that he's a great guy. He just goes about his work. And after years of observation, Abimelech says, you know, I've changed my mind about you, Abraham. I can see that God is with you. What is real, only what is real, can dare to be humble. When you see pride, self-promotion, and arrogancy, you can go to the bank. If a person, if we are promoting ourselves, it's not real. It's a ruse. It's a fake. It's needing to be propelled. But what is truly real, have you ever been around people that are genuinely great? I have. And you know what? Without question, the thing that strikes me about them is they are humble. They are humble. The greatest men that I've ever been around the true great men, they're just humble. They, they, don't, they don't share with you their stuff. They just are, you see. And, and the more you stay with them and hang around by them, you begin to discover without self-promotion what is truly real can be humble. It's just quiet. And, oh, man, how I want more of that for my life. How I want to be a realer person. Humility is linked directly to reality. Well, Abraham's humble. Just goes about doing his work. Well, number two, quickly, and I almost am done. Hang with me. Number two, not only is there humility, but there's honesty. Now, when Abimelech says, I can see that you are really blessed. I've been watching you for years. It's not self-promotion. It's just an observation. Abraham says, okay, good. Now, i got to be honest with you here, since you're here. You stole my will. You guys ripped off my well. I dug this well. This was our well, and you guys ripped it off. It's honesty, humility, and then honesty. He speaks the truth. I wouldn't, if somebody said, oh, man, I can see that God is with you in all that you do. You're a great man. You're, you're a giant of a guy. If I was going to talk about a ripped-off well, I wouldn't right then. I'd go, oh, thanks. 
God bless you. You're a wise guy. You can see clearly. I, I'm proud of you, you know. But Abraham's not that way. There is humility, but there's honesty. He says, well, since you're here, Bimmy, there is a problem I want to discuss with you. There's a well that has been dug, and your guys have ripped it off. And wells are important. He speaks the truth. You'll always know a man who, again, is big because he doesn't give in to flattery. He's not impressed with flattery. He just says what's honestly on his mind with humility, humility, honesty. He says, you, you ripped off our well. Bimelech says, number three, Bimelech says, after humility and honesty is charity. Because Abimelech says, I didn't even hear about this thing. This is news to me. I had no knowledge about this, this ripped off well. Hey, I didn't know. Abraham doesn't say, yeah, sure, you didn't know. Give me a break, buddy. He says, oh, okay. He shows charity. That is, he takes what Abimelech has to say at face value. Great, he says. So you, you didn't, I, I accept that. Which is a wonderful thing. Humility, and then honesty, and then charity, just saying, great. If that's your story, that's fine by me. I'm not going to argue with you. I'm not going to get in your face or, or, or press for a special prosecutor to be investigating the situation. I'll just, I'll just accept that presently. Number four, and finally, after humility and after honesty and then after charity, there is wisdom. He says, okay, I, I accept this, but to make sure that it doesn't happen again, we're going to cut covenant. We're going to take these lambs, pardon me, these, these, these sheep and these cattle. We're going to split them in half. Remember cutting covenant? We've talked about this before. You split the animal open. The two parties meet in the middle of the dead animal. They say their agreement. They clasp wrists. And they say, here's what I'm going to do. Here's what I'm going to do. And the idea is, if you don't do it, you're dead meat. Like this carcass that we're standing in the middle of. You better do it. You're giving me your word about it. It's a wonderful uh, legal contract in the middle of cut-up animals, you see. So what's happening is, Abraham and Abimelech, Abraham shows wisdom and says, okay, I believe you, but just to make sure we don't have problems in the future, we're going to cut covenant together. We're going we're to handle this wisely. Now, there have been deals that I have entered into that I look back on and I say, I was really dumb. Because I didn't cut covenant. That is, somebody said this was the deal verbally. I listened to them. I showed charity. That's fine. I believe what they were saying. And we did the thing. And then I found out down the road, man, it wasn't at all the way that I thought that we worked it out orally. All kinds of little asterisks and, and all kinds of little things were attached and took place and Oh, yeah, but, and this doesn't really work out. And, and I have been burned a couple of times in a big-time way because I chose to listen to brothers or people who gave me their word, and we had an oral kind of understanding. And I thought, hey, we're both brothers, and we're both ministers, and all that stuff, so this isn't going to be a problem, only to find out, man, I wish I would have had it wisely worked out, you see. And that's what Abraham is doing here. He's cutting covenant. It's now a legal, contractual agreement. He shows charity, but he's not working or moving in stupidity like I have done in the past. He's being wise. He cuts covenant. They make this agreement. 
And then what happens? And this is amazing to me. So they cut this covenant, they make their agreement, and then Abimelech says, well, what about these seven lambs? This isn't part of the cutting open of the... What are these seven lambs for? And this is what's really cool. Abraham says, I'm giving you these seven lambs. Let me explain. It was my 13th anniversary, mine in Tambos. Uh, so it was hers too. So we, we went on a long journey after <coughs> on Tuesday afternoon. I came home from church and said, we're going to get away for, for an overnighter. And so we journeyed a long distance for our 13th anniversary uh, celebration. We went to the Jacksonville Inn. And uh, they, have these, they have these cottages there that are way cool. I mean, these three, uh, they're, they're honeymoon cottages there that, that Jerry Evans has as part of the Jacksonville Inn. They are really, really nice. If you're looking for a nice place to go, any of you guys, I highly recommend one of those three cottages, particularly number 11. Be that as it may, we had a great time. You know, not a lot of travel time. You know, we just went three blocks and we're there. And uh, we just had a terrific time enjoying the afternoon and then the evening. So we went out to dinner in the evening and we went to the Jacksonville Inn. I'm kind of a creative guy, you know. And uh, went to the Jacksonville Inn. And we sat down there at the table and, and Tammy ordered, you know, this, uh, Jacksonville Inn chicken thing. And I ordered prime rib. And so... Our good friend, a guy that I just have admired so much, he's the epitome of class, Platon. He, he's, a, he's a young guy, well, not, he's a, he's a man there who uh, has been there for a number of years. He's the Mater D. He's always in a tuxedo. He's from the old world school. He knows just the elegant thing to say, and he knows, he knows how to work well. And I was just so, I mean, Platon's been just a great example to me in many ways, but this day, it was amazing. He was our waiter. He saw us and, you know, he did some nice things for us. And, and then he came and served me my prime rib. And I said, Platone, do you have any Heinz 57? He says, for your prime rib? And I said, yeah, I really... He says, well, you want ketchup too? And, and I said, no, just Heinz 57 will do. And I said, he, he, and I said now, you know, if you have some great... If, if you don't, uh, you know, A1's fine or, or whatever... And because if you really want your prime rib to taste great, you smother it with, with the horseradish stuff, you know, the white stuff. You smother the whole deal on there. And then you pour on Heinz 57 on top of that. It's just great. Anyway, so I smothered the horseradish on there. And Platone said, well, I, I will see. And so he's in his tux. And, and he's gone for seven, eight, nine minutes. And that's not like Platon. Platon is the quintessential waiter, mater d'. This guy is nothing but class. He knows how to serve people. And so I'm thinking, man, it's been eight minutes and my prime rib is, is now getting cool, you know, and I thought, that's, that's just not like him. And then he comes in and his hair is all messed up and his bow tie is crooked and he comes with a big bottle of A1, uh, pardon me, with uh, Heinz 57 steak sauce. He says, I said, where'd you go? And he said, I went to Jacksonville Market. So I ran down there. I, we didn't have A1. So he literally ran in his tuxedo from Jacksonville Inn this is right in the middle of the dinnertime rush hour thing. He runs down to Jacksonville Market on foot, makes the purchase, comes back again, and puts it there. And I tell you, man, I, I was, I said, Platon, you didn't have to do that. He said, he said, I know. He says, and I was just so impressed. I mean, that is service, you see. <laughs> and I was so impressed with Platon. And then he says, he says, well, John, he says, you know, he says, your daughter, Jessie, 
He says, you know, when she worked here as a waitress, he said, I would give her challenges, and she always found a way to meet those challenges. So I thought, you've given me a challenge, and I'm going to be like your daughter and find a way to meet the challenge. Did he score points? Let me tell you. Not only does he run down to Jacksonville Inn, but he touches our hearts by bringing Jesse into the equation. And, and we were just there. And, and so I, he, he left the sauce there, and we got to take it home. And, and uh, <coughs> Pardon me. Then he, he goes back and takes another table. And, and I say, Tammy, stay here for a minute. Then I ran out the door and went up to the U-Bank machine there by, by the U-Bank there. I, I knew I had to... Hey, listen, let me tell you something. For I gave him the biggest tip I've ever given anybody in my life. And it, for me, it was huge. I mean, it was, it was a big tip for me. I punched those little buttons and got, you know, $4. And, and then I came and... <laughs> and I left with... I gave him a big tip, you know. And I, it was just one of those... It was just a classy, classy gesture by a man who, who knows how to act wisely. Now, Abraham is doing the same thing. He's saying, Abimelech... We've cut covenant. You rip me off. I'm going to give you seven sheep. Seven lambs, you see. Why would you do that? Because the implication is, if you don't come through, if you change your mind, if you renege, you're going to look at these little lambs and you're going to feel pretty sheepish about it. I'm giving you this gift, you see, so that you will always remember that we made an agreement and those lambs are going to be a living reminder to you of the agreement we made. See, there's wisdom here. There's just plain old flat-out wisdom that Abraham is showing. So he shows humility, he shows honesty, he shows charity, and he shows just plain old practical wisdom, good common sense, and real, in the best sense of the word, cleverness, cutting covenant and then giving him a gift of seven lambs, lest Abimelech uh, forget, you see, about the agreement they made that day. Finally, last verse, and we'll go our way. After this, verse 33, Abraham planted a tree. The word grove there, as it says in your margin, is literally a tamarisk tree. He plants a tree now in Beersheba, and he calls there on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God, or El Olam, a new name, a new understanding about God. El Olam is the everlasting God. Whenever a new name is given in the Scriptures, it's always by revelation. Now see this. He plants a tree, and there he calls on the name of the Lord, a new name, El Olam, the everlasting God. And in this, we see a very important principle. What's Abraham doing? In planting the tree, he is finding a creative, spontaneous, innovative way of worshiping. How do you send a bouquet of flowers to heaven? FTD doesn't deliver. Abraham found a way. He said, Lord, this is for you. I'm going to plant this tree, this tamarisk tree, on this site as a gift to you. I like that. True creative worship. Love always finds a way to be fresh, innovative, and creative. Like Benjamin, when he, a couple of uh, summers ago, he, he, comes outside with a helium balloon and a picture of he and Jesus that he drew attached to it. Ben, what are you doing? I'm sending this balloon to Jesus. A picture of me and Jesus on the balloon. He lets it go. That is innovative, creative worship from the heart of one who loves God. When you love God, it's not enough just to sing the same songs that everybody else does. 
It's not enough just to go through the motions during regular worship sessions. A lover of God like Abraham finds a way to plant a tree and say, Lord, this is for you. Finds a way to break the alabaster box. This is my dowry, if you would. This is my, my, my wedding, and I'm giving it to you, Jesus, Mary would say that day. Finds a way like David to dance in his holy underwear before the Lord. And, and others are shocked by it, but the Lord is blessed and impressed with it. A true lover of God, the word worship means to turn and to kiss, pros canuo. It means to turn and kiss. A, a lover of God finds ways of fresh, personal, intimate expressions that others may never see or know anything about. But what happens, listen carefully, when I do it, when we involve ourselves in it, that is true, creative, loving the Lord from our hearts, not to be seen by others, but it's just an intimate expression between me and the Lord, there will always come fresh revelation of the nature of the Lord. Abraham had fresh revelation here because he was giving himself in spontaneous worship and now he discovers a whole other aspect about God, a new name for the Lord, El Olam. And finally, Abraham sojourned in the Philistines' land many days. And the story ends and will continue on in our study next Wednesday and Thursday. Let's pray, shall we? Now, Father, you've allowed us to be worshipers. You've given us the opportunity to come boldly before your throne, not only to petition, but also to praise. Not only to request, but also to respond to your goodness and greatness. Be with the Applegate family, Father. May we be real lovers of you. I know that your son taught us the Father is seeking, that you're seeking, Lord, those who will worship you in spirit and truth. Oh, Father, may we be those, even as we come to the end of the week, may we use the rest of this week to do just that, to love on you and then receive from you understandings about you. Father, I pray that we would walk in wisdom, that we would show charity, that we would be honest with ourselves and with others. And that most of all, Lord, we might be humble before you. Oh, Father, work what you worked in Abraham. Do it in us too, Lord. You are the one that made him this kind of person. Do it in me, Lord, to a greater degree. Do it in us, we pray. Have mercy. May it not be, Lord, with the Hagar mindset of rules and regulations and obligations. But may it be the work of your spirit, placing it in our hearts. Oh, Lord, I pray that you would cause Ishmael and Hagar to truly be sent away from each of our lives, even now, today. And that, Lord, we might really be set free in the Spirit and livers of the new covenant, walking in the new covenant. So, Lord, we give to you now the things that we've thought through and talked about and pray that you would work them into our lives Keep them, Lord, in our memories. And I pray that we might walk in a way that's worthy of the holy and high calling that you've placed upon us in Jesus' name. Bless this gang. Help them, Lord. Remind them. Inspire them. Fill them and bless them and keep them and use them. Oh, may they do well, Father. May they do well. 
May they continue, Lord, to be weaned from milk to meat, to stronger meat still. May they grow strong and do mighty exploits and honor you, Lord. May the Applegate family, oh Lord, may we be growing radically, steadily into maturity. We ask for your work, Lord. We need your blessing. We receive right now your grace and mercy and forgiveness for our previous failings. And now, Lord, we go on our way, committing ourselves to you, knowing that you will keep your promise, that you will complete that which you've begun in us for the glory of Jesus, Father, in whose name we pray. Amen.